Hello, how do you do? Pleased to see so many of you here. Um, as he's mentioned, my name is Kevin McQueen. I'm, um, this is the first time I've ever been in Owensboro. I really, really like it. I would like to come back. This is also one of the best libraries I think I have ever seen. I'm very impressed with it. I would like to come back here too sometime. Um, I would like to tell you just a little bit about myself and then I'll talk a little bit about um, the ghost stories, the things you actually came here to, to hear about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I teach at Eastern Kentucky University down in Richmond. I have been teaching there for nearly 30 years, part-time and full-time. I'm a, a senior lecturer in the Department of English. I have written 17 books now, all of them nonfiction, all of them biography or history or a historical true crime, some of them dealing with topics such as the supernatural, but I think they're still kind of like history books anyway because you learn a lot about history, you learn a lot about what people believed back in the day. Uh, you even get little bits of legitimate nuggets of history looking at historical true crime and murder type books and, <clears throat> excuse me, also paranormal books as well. So I think I'm primarily a writer of history. I like to fit in history whenever I can. Uh, my first book was written in 2001, hard to believe it was that long ago. It was a biography of Cassius Clay, the emancipationist who lived near Richmond. And I don't know if he's really so famous on this end of the state, but he's really very famous in the eastern part of the state. He was one of the only um, emancipationists, not really an abolitionist, but an emancipationist who actually lived in slaveholding territory. And uh, he was Abraham Lincoln's minister to Russia in the 1860s, he built a tremendous mansion called Whitehall down near Richmond, where I was a tour guide for a number of years, complete with a costume and everything. Um, you've seen the painting, I think, uh, that, that uh, has been put on all the posters here. That's actually the costume that I used to wear. One of my coworkers painted that. Uh, the place is... Uh, has a reputation for being haunted. So I had a great deal of fun working there. It was a historical landmark, but also it had a reputation. And uh, what inspired me to write the book was at that point, the last book about Clay had been written in the 80s. It was about 20 years old. And I kept hearing all these great stories about him from family members, from uh, locals who would come in for tours. And I kept finding all these things in old newspapers that I'd never seen in print before. And I thought, you know, it's time somebody wrote a new book about Cassius Clay, and while I'm at it, why don't I just put in some ghost stories too? <laughs> just for fun. And the book was published by Turner Publishing in 2001, and it led uh, to another book being published by McClanahan Publishing called Offbeat Kentuckians, and it was the uh, if each chapter was a biography of a different bizarre character from the state's history, and there were so many there ended up being a sequel. <laughs> Maybe someday a third one, and uh, as I recall, there were actually some stories from around this area. Um, unfortunately, with 120 counties, and most of the books that I've written have got dozens, even hundreds of stories in them, and it's really, really hard to remember all the details. So I'm not really sure, but I seem to recall there being some from this area. Um, from that point on, I 
did some books for, for History Press. And these were, again, historical books, only with kind of a twist to them. They're history, but I call it bizarre history, or real-life surrealism is a phrase I like to use because they're events that you would think could never possibly happen, and yet they actually did happen. And I've got documentation from old newspapers showing where all these things occurred, <clears throat> excuse me, and when. And that led to several books, including Kentucky Book of the Dead, which to this very day is one of my best sellers. I think it's gone into three printings the last time I looked. And uh, that one did well enough they wanted a sequel, so there was one called Forgotten Tales of Kentucky. People ask, what's the difference between them? Well, Book of the Dead is more ghost stories, um, embalming techniques from the old days, uh, stories about graveyards, epitaphs that might make you chuckle a little, because epitaphs are really very funny, and so are cemeteries by nature. Uh, whereas Forgotten Tales of Kentucky is more what I call earthbound things, giant skeletons and weird things dropping out of the sky. Uh, did you ever hear of the meat shower? Oh, yeah, it's a great story. It was in 1876. I, it was Bath County, and all, this, all these chunks of meat came out of the sky and landed on a little farm. Uh, I don't remember the exact location, but it was in Bath County. And you see accounts of it from time to time in books, just, you know, a few sentences, maybe a paragraph. But if I do say so myself, I think I have the best account of it because I went back to the old newspapers and I found all these great details that I'd never seen anywhere else. And to me, that's a perfect example of something that actually happened for sure. It's documented. And yet it's really strange and really hard to explain. If you see the book, you'll see some of the scientific explanations for it, which, um, well, they leave something lacking, let's put it that way. Uh, the best one was that a, uh, a flock of buzzards vomited the meat. So, well, that's great, except for the fact that no one saw them, and it would take dozens of them to saturate the ground with all that bloody meat. And they would have to have all thrown up at exactly the same place at exactly the same time, which um, I don't think that's a very good explanation. There may be a good one, but I don't think that's one of them. Uh, from that point, I started writing books for, uh, oh, I should mention one of my favorites. And uh, people sometimes say, what's the scariest thing you wrote? the thing you find that bothers you the most. And uh, the, I always tell them it was one that has nothing at all to do with the supernatural, but rather the natural. And that was a book called The Great Louisville Tornado of 1890. And uh, I've always been afraid of tornadoes for very good cause. When I was six years old, uh, an enormous tornado passed within a couple hundred yards of our house where we were living in Richmond at the time. And it killed a number of people and, uh, well, you just don't forget something like that easily. It was quite a traumatic moment, quite a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A moment that really makes a mark in your life. So I've been interested in the topic for many, many years. And doing a little research on Kentucky tornadoes, I found Louisville was hit by a really terrible tornado in March 1890. And what makes it so interesting is that everyone's forgotten about it. 
Everybody remembers the Johnstown, Pennsylvania flood, which took place only a year before the Louisville tornado, but even in Louisville, people don't remember this tornado. You mention it and they always say, oh yeah, the one in 1974. No, not that one. This one killed well over 100 people and it went right through. Uh, here's how powerful it was. It went through downtown Louisville and then it actually crossed the river into Indiana and it devastated but didn't kill people in New Albany. Devastated the city. Oh, what's the other city? It's southern Indiana. Thank you. Um, it went through those cities, did a lot of damage, didn't kill anybody, but then it turned around and it came across the river and entered Kentucky again. So the power of a tornado that'll devastate a city, cross a river, hit two more cities, turn and come back, that's pretty frightening. Uh, one thing about that book, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, I have a terrible memory, but if you go to most reference sources and look up the Louisville tornado, I think it's, they, most of them say about 70 people, I think, were killed. But the research I did indicated it was a lot more than that, more like 120. And uh, after I wrote the book, I actually heard from somebody with the weather service saying, well, you know, the Louisville tornado on the list of deadliest tornadoes in American history was always number 14 or 15 or something like that, but we think now we may have to upgrade it. I don't know if they ever did, but they told me they would. <laughs> I haven't looked. Um, uh, so I think that's really a very frightening book when you read what nature can do. I always tell people I wrote it as kind of a catharsis, thinking maybe if I wrote it, I would no longer be afraid of tornadoes, but exactly the opposite happened. It just made it worse than ever. So, yeah, I think the pictures in it alone are really something to see. They came from the University of Louisville, and it's just, the devastation is absolutely unbelievable. Well, not long ago, I started writing books for Indiana University Press, I started something that I call the American Gothic series, where I would take a region and do all these stories from the region, including ghost stories, murder stories, uh, premature burial stories, grave robber stories, knee-slapping epitaph stories. I guess it really starts with Kentucky Book of the Dead, two Kentucky books, and then a couple, three Indiana books, and then finally, um, a couple years ago, Horror in the Heartland, which covers the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, et cetera. Uh, same time, a book, Creepy California. I was doing a Western book, and it really occurred to me there were so many California stories, they really needed their own book. And I find no one ever disagrees with that, <laughs> ever. So California has its own book. Uh, last about three weeks ago, the most recent book came out, New England Nightmares, covering not just New England, but also northern states like Pennsylvania. And next year, I'm pleased to say the Western book will be out. Um, so that kind of brings me up to date on the books that I've done so far. Uh, as I mentioned, there were 17, so I, it's hard for me to remember even the titles of all of them. The Southern book came from Pelican Publishing. It's, uh, they gave it a title that I can never remember. I wanted it to be called Southern Gothic. Short, easy to remember. They said, well, good, but we think there's other books by that title. So give me a minute and I'll strain here and I'll try to remember what they called it. I'm convinced the title hurt its sales. 
It was Gothic and Strange True Tales of the South. So a title about this long that no one remembers. I still call it Southern Gothic, but I think it's my best book. Well, um, I wanted to tell, uh, well, I wanted to talk about how the books are researched. I always find people want to know. Uh, they also want to know if I ever saw a ghost. So remind me, and I'll come around to that when we're talking about ghosts. Uh, the way the books are researched, this is going to sound really strange, and I acknowledge that it is strange. Uh, for many years, I've had a hobby, and I don't even know if you would dignify it by calling it a hobby, but I would go to the EKU library, down to the microfilm room, and I'd go to the Louisville Courier-Journal, which they have on microfilm, and I started with the year 1877, and I've been going through every single issue, page by page, making notes in a laptop on stories that sounded good, like they might be worth writing about. I'd write the date and the page number. And uh, I got up to about 1940. And then I thought, it's time to stop this for a while. Because <laughs> I've got enough material here for probably 20 or 30 books. And eventually, I'll go back and start over and do, do some more. So that's where the stories come from, mostly. If you look in the back of the books, you'll see the Courier-Journal is a huge source. Uh, it's a very good source, too, because it was a very respectable newspaper. It was uh, probably the most widely regarded newspaper in the South in the 19th century up to the 1930s or so. And uh, often, I find, you can get even better details from local papers. So interlibrary loan is a great tool. If you find something happened in a small town, <clears throat> excuse me, even in another state, often if you go to the interlibrary loan and ask, they will find the newspaper on microfilm from that particular town, and you already know the dates, because you've already found that in the Courier-Journal, and local papers always give lots more details than the state papers do. So um, that's a great source. I'm working on a book now on Midwestern murder stories, and I found a good one from Muncie. And the Courier-Journal's recounting of a story, it was just enough to where I thought this might be interesting. I don't know if I'll write about it. And I got the Muncie papers from that era, from that week, and I found all these bizarre, wonderful, rich, creepy details that the major papers didn't cover. So I think that's a good example of how you can always get better stuff from local papers or more stuff. Uh, but the big papers will lead you on the track. Um, you can also find a lot of good corroboratory evidence from Ancestry.com, from Newspapers.com, and I, I really don't use the Internet as much as I probably should. I like using microfilm. People say, well, Newspapers.com is good. You can find stuff like that, and you can if you know exactly what you're looking for in the first place. If you've got a name, newspapers.com is great. But the reason I like old newspapers, you find all these things you're really not looking for. You find all this extra stuff. Um, I even took notes on things like advertisements that I thought were really strange or bizarre or possibly could be used one day. And I found that they could. Uh, I found ads for uh, medicine with cocaine in it. See, they used to put cocaine in their medicine. So when it 
came time to write a book about uh, crimes in Louisville, I had cause to refer to the medicine of the time, and I thought, well, great, I've got all these ads that I can refer to about all the drugs they used to put in these things. So you never know what you're going to find that's useful. I love old newspapers. Let's see, what else did I want to tell you about? Um, ghost stories. That's what you came for. Uh, one thing I would like to point out, let me hold up a copy of Kentucky Book of the Dead. This is it. Check out that cover. It's a parody of our state seal. You know, the two guys shaking hands. Well, they're, they're skeletons. <laughs> one in his swallowtail coat and the other in his Daniel Boone outfit. One thing I would like to point out is that just as a bonus, my identical twin brother did all the illustrations in the book, and I brought him with me. He's right there. So, no, you're not seeing double. It's my twin. Now, the first chapter in the book is all about Whitehall. I thought, well, I'll just throw in a biography of Clay just for the benefit of people who don't know anything about him. It's not really any good reading about his house if you don't know anything about him. Um, but to come around to the ghosts, people say to me, okay, you worked there for six, seven years. Did you ever see anything? In the book, I actually have some personal stories. I'm sad to say I never saw a ghost there in all the time I worked there. I don't know if I should be sad about that or not. Maybe I should really be happy. But uh, I heard some very strange things. And being of a, you know, an investigative turn of mind, I would never, like a lot of people, go, oh, a strange noise, it was a ghost. <laughs> I would always go check it out to see if I could find an explanation for it, and sometimes we could, we meaning the other guides and myself. Uh, we usually didn't check out stuff on our own. We'd get into a gang of five or six <laughs> and go look for things. And sometimes uh, we did find explanations. At one point, we kept smelling something that smelled like perfume. would come out of nowhere, and we would look at each other and go, hmm, ghost? But we looked around and we found that the house cleaner, the housekeeper had just recently purchased a new kind of detergent soap for the floors and that was what the smell was. It was, in our imaginations, we thought we were smelling ghost perfume, but it was really carpet cleaner. Humiliating, but we found an explanation for it. But then there were things not so easy to explain. Um, some of the other guides did see things, or at least they said they did. Um, most of them, with one or two exceptions, were people that I really, really think were truthful. I think they were serious about it. We used to have a guide who would go in looking for ghosts. Uh, anything she heard, anything she saw, it was a ghost. And we quickly learned not really to believe what she was saying, because everything was a ghost to her. But then we had other guides who were far more skeptical and their, their stories were much more believable because they weren't looking for things when they happened. Now, the story that I like to tell people is, we used to have, a, it's a huge house, it's three floors. It's actually three floors with split level rooms because there was a house built by Clay's father in 1798 and then he built on top of it and around it. So, in between floors, 
are the floors of the elder house. If you've never seen it, you really should. It is a real treasure. Just off exit 95, 75, exit at highway 75. Um, so whenever we had large groups of people, there was no way for one guide to show everybody all three floors, so we would station a guide on each floor. So one person would show the first floor, one would show the second. One day we had a large group. They selected me to do the third floor. So I went up to the room in between the second and third floor, split level room. There was a guide who went ahead of me named Amy and she had a small group of people. We could hear her voice, you know, as she was going through the house showing, <clears throat> showing the place off. I went to the, the split level room and I wasn't thinking about ghosts at all. I was trying to remember song lyrics. I was just standing there waiting for this large group of people to come and I could hear voices coming from the third floor room that we called the history room. It's a sort of a room, it was a bedroom once. We just had miscellaneous photos and relics in it for people to look at before they go back down and outside. And I could hear a woman talking in a very low voice and I thought, oh, Amy's in there. She's showing the history room to, the, to, the, to the, her, tour, her tour group. Several minutes passed, total silence from the room. I could start to hear a large crowd of people approaching from downstairs. So I thought I better go to the history room and tell Amy that she better get her tour <clears throat> out of the house before this enormous group comes upstairs. So I went into the history room and found the place totally empty. And I heard the voice coming from the room Nobody left. Where I was standing, it was in the, the split level between floors. There was no other way out of the building than for people to come down the stairs in front of me. Later, I found out she had already taken her group out before I got up to the third floor. So that was the thing that I thought was really, really creepy. That made an impression on me. We used to have these guide ropes, these big velvety, you know, kind of ropes that they hang up to keep people from going in rooms where they're not supposed to. I was coming down the back stairs one day and saw one of those ropes just swinging really, really, really hard. And it kept on swinging, and it was kind of interesting. I thought, well, is it going to lose momentum? Is it going to stop? It finally did but much longer than it really should have. And then just as an experiment, I gave the thing a good whack myself to see how long it would swing. It just swung a second or two and stopped. And that was a very strange thing. Uh, to me, something like that is a lot stranger than someone saying, well, I saw a full-fledged apparition with clothes and a top hat and it was standing in the doorway and it spoke to me. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but the other kind of thing just strikes me as being even creepier because they're a little harder to explain. They're a little more low key. Um, not really the kind of thing people make up either. If people are gonna make up something, it's gonna be full formed apparitions with top hats and skull heads and blood coming out of their eyes and that kind of thing. I remember too one day, this was a pretty good story. I think it's in the book. Uh, in the fall, there's only two guides. In the summer, they've got four or five, but you know, the budget means in the fall, fewer people visit, summer vacationing's over, so they cut the number down to two. Well, one fall, it was me and another guide named Michelle. So Michelle was showing the back porch to her group. 
She turned around to go inside, and she told me that just as she reached the door, the knob turned. The wind didn't blow the door open. The knob turned, and the door opened on its own, just like a gentleman was standing there, you know, opening the door. She thought I did it. I wasn't there. And she found me sitting in the room, what we call the powder room, the room under the stairs where the guides hang out until their groups arrive. I was reading. So I definitely had nothing to do with the door opening for Michelle. That was a very interesting thing. Even more interesting, it was October 19th, which happens to have been Cassius Clay's birthday. So those are the things that I personally experienced. Oh, there was also one day, one of the custodians and I were in the powder room, and we heard this horrible sound coming from below us. It sounded like somebody beating a piece of metal with another piece of metal. Just an incredible racket. Um, so we both ran downstairs to see what was going on down there, thinking maybe somebody sneaked in who wasn't supposed to be there. And the room in the basement below the powder room was, as you might expect, completely empty, no people, no animals, uh, no pieces of stray metal to make a noise with. That was a good one because I actually had somebody with me when it happened. So I had a witness for that one. Well, those are my Whitehall ghost stories. <laughs> I somehow just kept barely missing things. It kind of makes me mad. Something would happen, and I would just be this close to witnessing it myself. One day, uh, my friend Charles was the guide, and he had a couple of uh, women on the tour with him, and suddenly all three of them heard the sound of a music box. Now one person hears a music box. Maybe they're crazy, maybe they're drunk or something, but they all three heard it. And they were saying, is there a music box in the house? And he said, no, there's not, but I hear it too. And I happened to be in the house that day only like a floor away, and I still kick myself. If I had been down there at the same time, then I might have heard it myself, but I, was, I didn't hear it. And the book has other ghost stories in it, but also, as I say, stories about embalming techniques from Kentucky in the old days. You'd be surprised all the things they did to make people look lifelike. Ice. There's a little hint for you. Ice. Lots of ice. Yes. Oh, embalming? Uh, I don't know. I was always interested in creepy topics. When I was just a little guy, I was into monsters and things. Now, I know it sounds like I'm making this up. I'm not. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I actually had a part-time job in a funeral home in Richmond. I was a night watchman. So I was there by myself at night. Uh, yeah. My job was, if the phone rang in the middle of the night, to find out you know, who passed away and where and call whoever was on duty and tell them to go and, and uh, just clean the place up in the morning if it needed it. So that certainly piqued my interest a little. And another story in the book involving ghosts, though, 
And this really was a creepy story. Usually when I do ghost stories, I don't really aim for scares, I aim for laughs. I try to write ghost stories in a way that they're kind of funny. Uh, you'll find if you ever do read my books that they're full of really bizarre, creepy, unpleasant events, but I try to write them up in a way that they're amusing. Otherwise, it's just too dark. You've got to make it a little funny somehow. So most of the ghost stories are kind of uh, told with amusing tongue-in-cheek humor. But there was another house in Richmond that I wrote about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I promised that I would not give its exact location. So in the book, I'm kind of vague about it. I think I wrote that it's in the middle of town, which is true. Um, this place was really creepy because the couple who owned the house back in the 1980s, they had since moved out. They lived there in the 1980s up to sometime in the 1990s. But they, they, I got hold of them. I found their names in old newspaper accounts. They were willing to talk about the place. This is, to me, one of the more interesting ghost stories, and here's the reason why. They moved in in 1983. Big, big, big 19th century house. Enormous. Boy, I wish I could buy this place. It was for sale a few years ago, and to this day, I cry myself to sleep because I couldn't afford this place. Although, when you consider what happened in it, maybe that's good. Uh, the first night they moved in, they woke up in the morning and their furniture had been rearranged. They'd put baskets on the wall and they were down on the floor, scattered. Not like they fell off the wall, they were scattered. And they thought that was sort of creepy. They put everything back where it belonged. Uh, they'd only been in the place, I think, a few weeks. He woke up in the middle of the night and there was a woman standing next to the bed. And... Um, to say she was scary looking is just uh, a great understatement. She had these sort of sagging jaws and she had dark spots around her eyes, uh, deep sunken eyes. She had widow's weeds on, like she was heading for a funeral. And uh, she was elderly and she spoke. And he said her voice was very deep, very croaky, very manlike, and he couldn't make out everything she was saying, but she said something about going to a funeral and looking for a picture. And um, then she disappeared. And he found out later that his wife was sound asleep. She didn't see it. In fact, she never did see the ghost. He saw it several times. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, because if they were making up something, wouldn't she be saying, yes, I've seen the ghost? But she was very, very forthright about the fact that she never saw it. Uh, apparently, this ghost only wanted men to see it, because Mr. Jones, the man who owned the house, he saw it. His son saw it. His wife's father saw it. But only one time... Um, had I ever heard of a woman seeing a ghost, this, the, the ghost in a house? Well, anyway, the part that I thought was so interesting about it was about a month later, after seeing this really scary woman by the side of the bed, he was up in the attic digging around, you know, in a crawl space. And suddenly, whoops, suddenly he's looking right into this face, this unforgettable face. And he told me he nearly died on the spot. And then he realized he was looking at a painting. And he pulled it into the light, and it was a picture of perfect likeness of the woman he'd seen by the side of the bed. 
And what I thought was so <clears throat> interesting about that, if he saw the painting first, and then he saw the ghost, then you could say to yourself, oh sure, he saw this really scary face and it stuck in his subconscious and he dreamed the ghost by the side of the bed. But he saw the ghost and then the painting. And uh, it's quite a face. I, um, they let me take a picture of the painting. They framed it and hung it up in their kitchen. I would have put it somewhere other than the kitchen. But they said that after that, um, the ghost calmed down. It would quit rearranging their furniture and things. If you want to see what she looked like, come up after and I'll let you see the picture of the book. And uh, his wife actually confirmed. She said, oh yeah, he told me all about this woman by the side of the bed a month or two before he found the painting. So it wasn't a case of seeing the painting first. I always thought that was supremely interesting. Um, as far as he could determine, the woman was named Cat Mary Catherine Stockton. And uh, her son died in the house, and then much, much later, one of her other descendants committed suicide in the house, 1937. I found the death certificate there. Sometimes death certificates are really handy information. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but I thought that was a pretty creepy story. She, uh, I guess, shouldn't say lived. The ghost stayed in a room in the upper attic, and he said he finally got to the point where he could sense when she was there. And evidently, one time they had company. They had a little party there, and everybody there saw the drawers opening and closing on a, in a chest of drawers, and uh, things... I don't remember now if they saw things coming out of the drawers, but they saw the drawers opening and closing. So that was another case where not just one person saw it, but a great many. And their son, who was born several years after they moved into the house, uh, I got to speak with him when he was about 15 or so. And he said, well, yeah, you know, I was only two or three at the time, but she made an impression. I definitely remember seeing her. Um, she usually showed up around Christmas time. Apparently that was her favorite time of year. The only female person who ever saw the ghost, as far as I know, saw her standing beside a Christmas tree. And she wore different clothes. The first time he saw her, she was wearing widow's weeds. But his son said that he saw her wearing a white dress with one of those uh, 1890s type hats with a big, big white hat with a big brim around it and a black band. And the part that I thought was kind of creepy was he said she was standing there like this. You know, like she was saying, come to me, child. <laughs> or something along those lines. I don't know that she said anything. When he was little, he said he thought she was a witch. And he used to tell his mom and dad, you know, there's a witch who keeps coming down out of the attic. I'm afraid she'll break my toys. <laughs> That's what he used to say anyway. She only spoke twice, according to Mr. Jones, the one time by the side of the bed, and once he saw her standing in the house, and she said something about a fan. He had no idea what that meant, but once, you know how funeral homes used to have those little fans you'd wave and fan yourself with? He found one, and he took it into the house, and apparently she liked it, because she kept hiding it. <laughs> so maybe she wanted a fan for some reason. Maybe she was really hot. We can speculate about that all we want. 
well, uh, those are the best. There are other ghost stories in the book, too, but those were the only two that I had any personal knowledge about that I didn't just get from an old paper. Oh, I should also mention, before the Joneses bought the house, there was another family that owned it, and he said uh, the story appeared, I think it was in the Lexington Herald later at one point, and he got a phone call afterwards from a guy saying, you know, back in the late 70s, I lived in that house with my aunt and uncle, and I saw it too. In fact, he described it perfectly, even though the newspaper account didn't really go into any detail about what the ghost looked like. So again, this is interesting. I'm not going to say, yes, there are certainly ghosts, but I just find things like that very interesting because they seem to corroborate each other, and they're so outlandish and so bizarre. Um, the stranger the details and the more they match, I, the more you got to think about it. Still, I've never seen one. Wish I could, maybe. Not very much. Um, her name was Mary Catherine Stockton. Um, her tombstone is in Richmond Cemetery. I actually went out there myself one time looking for it. She died in, let me see, 1898. I have a hard time remembering details sometimes, but I remember that. Um, well, if you have any questions, I'd be glad to do a question and answer session. If you have any local stories that you'd like to tell me about, I would love to hear about it. You can contact me through EKU quite easily. I have a website, too. Um, you can find me um, on Facebook. I have two Facebook sites. There's Kevin McQueen, which is the author site, and Kevin D. McQueen, which is where I post weird comedy stuff. And, uh, remember, though, my name is spelled K-E-V-E-N. People forget, and then they can't find me. And there's also a KevinMcQueenStories.com, where I post a lot of things. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, I do. Unfortunately, I don't have any copies of Book of the Dead. I only have very few left, but I brought some of my recent ones, including, um, if you happen to be from Indiana, one of them has Indiana stories. In fact, two of them. One of them's Murder and Mayhem in Indiana. Um, the parallel volume, Louisville Murder and Mayhem. Yes? Um, I was curious, for, for your uh, Kentucky stories and things like that, do they tend to start around when Kentucky solidifies as a Oh, to before 1790s. And, uh, I don't have any that go back that far, but I think the reason for that is I really started my heavy-duty research with 1877. Actually, it's been on my list of things to do. If I get some books ahead and I've got a summer with nothing to do, I want to go back to the colonial Kentucky newspapers on microfilm, which would probably go pretty fast because they're like four pages and 90% advertisements. I bet you could get through a month of papers in just like two or three days, or probably quicker than that. They only, they only came out once a week, too. So you could probably get through a year's worth of papers in less than a week. And maybe then, I've got a few stories from the really early settlement days, but not many. They probably are, yeah. I mean, once you've got census records, so I try to do as much research as I can. So if I find a ghost story in the newspapers and they mention such and such, a respectable citizen of such and such county, I'll sometimes go to the 
to the uh, census records to see if this person really existed. And, you know, if they did, that's kind of interesting because why would they let the newspapers tell these stories about them if there wasn't a basis in fact to it? So, yeah, but that would be before the census. And you'll find some records going back that far, but not many. There are a few. There are a few. Um, what was it? Forgotten Tales of Kentucky is a... Sorry. Every time I do that, I think it's going to feed back, and you're just going to all fall backwards. <laughs> it's happened before. Uh, Forgotten Tales of Kentucky is a story of a monster that some, some Kentucky colonists saw in the woods. And there's a story about um, supposed catacombs under Lexington, which apparently went back to the pioneer days. In fact, uh, reputable sources say at one time there were little pyramids around what is now Lexington. Who built them? That's very strange. Oh, sorry. Yes. Well, I'm glad you said that. I don't really have any stories about murder, victim, ghosts coming back for event. Well, actually, I kind of do have one. Now that I th I've just written so much, I can't remember it all, and my memory's horrible anyway, just horrible. Uh, the last book I did, New England Nightmares, there is a story in there that is allegedly about a man that was hanged and said he would come back uh, a guy sharing his jail cell after the guy was hanged said the ghost came back and told him he was going to go get after everyone who got him hanged. And then sure enough, something beat to death the father-in-law of the man that he killed. Something. Pro I can't imagine a ghost hitting somebody, but I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Um, I do have a lot of historical true crime stories that involve ghosts, though. I always say if you can do a historical true crime story, that's great. If you can do a ghost story, that's great. If you can combine them, and nothing is better than that. Yes, I can. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Uh, one of the books, let me think a minute here. It's called Cruelly Murdered. It's another set of Kentucky stories. Uh, going through all the Courier-Journal stories, I found a really engrossing tale of a maid named Jenny Bowman who was murdered by a couple of burglars in 1883, I think, 1887, that's it. And it was just a story that kept on building. It went on for day after day, month after month, until the two were finally hanged. And I thought, this is really an epic story. It's not just your average true crime. This would actually make a movie. It would be that good. And uh, again, a few people have written little bitty things about it, but I think my account is probably the longest and the most detailed. Uh, but then I found another book called Ghosts of Old Louisville by David Dominey. And I was reading his book and I found he was referring to a ghost named Jenny Bowman on a certain street and I was going, yes, that's the story I'm writing about. I'll have to work that into my story because that would be a really good way to end it because apparently her ghost has been seen on the street. Uh, the mansion where she was killed is long gone. Maybe that's why she's wandering the streets. She doesn't know where the house is. Oh, it's a creepy story. 
And burglars, they, one thing they did was they hit her with, with uh, fireplace pokers. And one person living on the street says that his fireplace pokers have a tendency, he'll leave and he'll come back and they'll be formed into a cross shape when he returns. If you can work that into a story, you have to do it. You're remiss in your duty if you can leave out something like that. So that's the best example I can think of. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Good, good question. Actually, I have kind of a cutoff point. I did my research up to about 1940. Uh, I don't want to make people mad. So, right, if you write about a murder case and it happened recently, someone's going to get mad. Whether it's a member of the victim's family or the murderer's family. Um, I even wrote about a case from 1928. And I thought, well, that's safe. And I sure enough got a complaining letter about it. But recently, uh, what is the shoot? Sorry, I can't remember a thing. Um, New England Nightmares is a story that took place in 2004, I think. I was very careful to not mention the person's name. <clears throat> and that was, again, something I found in a newspaper. I think that's probably the most recent thing I wrote about. I try not to write too much about anything that happened after about 1940 or so. I don't have any really recent ghost stories. I wish I did. If anybody knows any, let me know. I'm working on a Kentucky book for 2019, 2020. So, yeah, if I've got any good stories in there, I'd sure love to hear them. Yeah, I've got my Western book will be out next year. It's sort of a book a year, so I'm working on Kentucky. I haven't done an all-Kentucky book in about six or seven years. So that'll be my 2020 book. The last chapter will be very surprising to people. I can't say anything more about it, but... Um, Wait till it comes out. Oh, the Hart Brothers. Yeah, I uh, wrote about the Hart Brothers and more offbeat Kentuckians. So I do have a chapter on them. But if you have a good story, by all means, I want to hear it. They were frontier serial killers, more or less. Oh, you mentioned frontier stories. There's a frontier story. Uh, it was uh, two brothers named Harp, and now I'm trying to remember exactly why. It was western Kentucky, I think. Very close to Illinois, wasn't it? Because one of them got caught in Illinois, I think. A river pirate. Yeah. Yeah, there's a town called Harp's Head. Right, because they cut off his head and stuck it on a pole. That's what they used to do. 1799. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they died a few years apart. But yeah, they were uh, thugs. They were basically serial killers. No kidding. They were also bigamists. They had like two wives apiece or something like that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, this. Uh, any other questions? Feel free to email me.
Oh, composition and literature. Yeah, basic freshman, sophomore. It would be nice to do a class about research, um, research sources and how to write up. Um, I guess you'd call it creative nonfiction. It's nonfiction, it's true stuff, but it's written in a creative kind of way, which doesn't really get as much attention as, say, a novelist would get who entirely uses their imagination. But I say a lot of the true things you write about are more bizarre than anything you'd ever see in a novel. Because novelists have to keep, at least, unless it's science fiction or fantasy, where no rules apply, they've got to keep some rules of realism. Well, some of the stuff in my books just defies belief. No one would put it in a novel, because everyone would read and go, oh, come on. Come on, that could never, ever happen. So I call it real life surrealism. Yeah, that would be a good class. Maybe I can talk them into letting me do that. But I don't know what textbook. I guess there's some textbook out there. I make one of my own, yeah. Creative nonfiction. Well, if you have no questions, I'm very glad to see you. If you want to see what that ghost looked like, come on up and take a look. I always tell people don't look before bedtime, though. <laughs> I mean, she's that scary looking. All right, thanks everybody. Uh, be sure to... Thank you. I feel like I've left out something, but I don't know what. It'll come to me later, no doubt.